Lord, this morning we come before you wanting to know more of you and your kingdom. So, Lord, this morning let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Send your Holy Spirit that we may understand your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Um, I have never preached in this pulpit until 9 o'clock, and I, I guess it's okay, but um, uh, Mike Henning, former rector of St. Stephen's that has one of these canopies above the pulpit, used to refer to it as the preacher snuffer. <laughs> um, I managed to survive the 9 o'clock, so I guess we're all right. Um, well, I want to talk briefly about the place of the Gospel of John or the place of this scripture within the Gospel, uh, why you wrote the book, and um, look at part of the reading this morning in uh, closer uh, examination, and then um, also talk about what that means for us in God's world today. Um, John actually tells us in this morning's passage why you wrote the whole gospel. Um, in uh, verses 30 and 31 of chapter 20, he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John apparently is writing here to fill in gaps in the stories from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, things that weren't said in those other Gospels. And uh, he also does some things to um, clarify the timeline of what was going on. Uh, many dramatists in particular and theologians have looked at the timeline in John and say it makes more sense than anything found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Uh, and in particular, people like Dorothy Sayers, novelist and playwright, and, and many others have also uh, convinced me that John's account is the only version of the story that makes sense. For one thing, the other Gospels don't give sufficient motive for his crucifixion. Um, uh, anyway, we, we can go into that discussion much more uh, at some other point, but I've been convinced that that's what John is up to here. He's writing to inspire belief, both to reinforce the belief of his hearers uh, because this was written to be read aloud, and also to provide a witness to people who hear it who haven't heard what's going on before. So, closer look at today's passage. Um, sometimes this passage is referred to as Little Pentecost. Uh, there's a problem, though. It does have some similarities. The similarities are that the Holy Spirit is imparted in some way and the disciples are sent on a mission from God. Uh, but this so-called little Pentecost, I think that's really a misnomer. It's very different from Pentecost itself. Uh, I was really persuaded of that thoroughly by sitting under the teaching and preaching of Terry Fulham uh, when I was on staff at St. Paul's. The day is different and the effect is different. Um, 
The day is 50 days earlier. This is Easter evening. It's not 50 days later when the Feast of Pentecost is. So the, the day isn't the same. Uh, and uh, let's, let, John um, has been thoroughly um, examined uh, and exposited upon by Dr. Rod Whitaker. He has a commentary he's published on John that I'd like to quote here. The evidence seems, he says, to suggest that two different events are mentioned. The breathing of the Spirit by Jesus is certainly climactic in John's Gospel, but the results do not fulfill the promises uh, made earlier in the Gospel. A week later, they're not bearing witness, but they're back in the room with a locked door. In the next chapter, they're back fishing for fish, not for new disciples. Furthermore, the conditions for the presence of the outpouring of the Spirit have not been completely met. The Spirit will be given for the empowerment of their witness after Jesus' return to the Father. Jesus is in the process of returning, but has not yet returned on Easter evening. Thus, it appears that Jesus' giving of the Spirit, like his ascending to the Father, is a complex process and not a simple one-time event. John is filling in details not given by Luke regarding the beginning of the disciples' new life and ministry. Well, I want us to take a look at what some of those details in Luke are and look at how the two accounts actually fit together quite nicely. After, in the Gospel of Luke, after the story about um, the incident on the road to Emmaus, which obviously is after the resurrection. Um, what it says is in Luke 24, 45 and following, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high, which is what happens on Pentecost. Pentecost is about the Holy Spirit's gifting and empowering for ministry, including evangelism, leading others to faith in Christ. That hasn't happened yet. So what did happen? Here's one thread of evidence. Consider for a minute how Peter went from consistently misunderstanding what was going on in Jesus' ministry and its significance. He goes from that state of mind to spontaneously delivering a, a talk on Pentecost explaining current events based on passages in the Old Testament, a talk that, bought, that brought 3,000 people to faith in Jesus. So on Easter evening, according to John, Jesus breathes the Holy Spirit onto the disciples. Luke says that he opens their minds to understand the scriptures. So apparently this is how Peter finally gets it right. Jesus had opened his mind to understand the scriptures and then anointed him with power to proclaim that understanding. So, let's review the day's events from Luke and John. Jesus rises from the dead. Angels and or Jesus himself appear to three women of their company at the tomb. 
Um, they come back and tell the other disciples about it who have the reaction, silly women. Not much has changed, has it, ladies? <laughs> anyway, so what happens is uh, Peter, in fact, and John go running to the tomb to see what's going on, but for the most part, the, apparently the disciples thought they were uh, being hysterical. Anyway, um, so Jesus then, as two of their company go back to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them on the road and has that interaction with them that culminates in his being invited to dinner. When he gets to dinner, he breaks the bread and promptly vanishes. <laughs> the pe two people sitting there are like, what just happened? Wait a minute. They go running back to Jerusalem to say that they've seen the risen Christ because that's what they figure out just happened. He breaks the bread as he did on the evening of Monday, Thursday, and goes, uh, so they go running back to say they've seen him. And while they're there, he appears to all the disciples except Thomas. That's only because Thomas isn't there. Uh, and says, peace be with you. This event is sufficiently disturbing that he has to say, peace be with you twice. <laughs> Apparently they're too excited or uh, otherwise uh, unfocused on what he is there for. And he shows them his wounds and says, I'm now sending you like the Father has sent me. Breathe the Holy Spirit onto the disciples, says receive the Holy Spirit, and also opens their minds to understand the scriptures. Finally, he says, stay here until you're clothed with power from on high. So that's what happens on Easter evening if you look at Luke and John in combination with each other. But what about now? Paul in Romans 10 in the reading this morning said, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Well, here we are about 2000 years later and not everyone to the ends of the earth has heard yet. I have a little video I'd like to show you. This is going to take a couple minutes. Understanding the remaining mission task. Who has already heard the good news about Jesus? And who is still waiting to hear for the first time? Nearly 10% of the world's population are committed followers of Jesus, who believe Jesus is who he said he is, and who have given their lives to him. They believe anyone can know God through Jesus, and they tell people around them about him. Many other people also identify as Christians. These other Christians need deeper faith in Jesus and a personal relationship with God through him. About 33% of the world's population identify themselves as Christians. But where do the world's Christians live? The good news of Jesus is spreading in the world, but not evenly. First, let's divide the world into regions by population, then show where the Christians live. Two countries, India and China, each have one-fifth of the world's population, so they will get their own section. The Muslim-majority countries also get their own section because they are similar to each other. There are other Asian countries and other non-Muslim-majority countries in Africa. Here is Europe's population. 
and North America lumped with all the Pacific Island countries, including Australia and New Zealand. And finally, Latin America from Mexico South. In each region, let's show the followers of Jesus and the others who identify themselves as Christians. Latin America has the highest total percentage of Christians, followed by North America and the Pacific. Europe has many nominal Christians, while non-Muslim Africa has many committed followers of Jesus. Today, China has also many committed followers of Jesus. Other Asian countries average about one-third Christian, including Korea and the Philippines. Some Muslim-majority countries have had Christian people groups for centuries. Of all the large areas of the world, India has the lowest percentage of Christians. As you can see, the Christians are not evenly spread around the world. Today, most Christians live in the Americas, Europe, or Sub-Saharan Africa. In each region, the committed followers of Jesus can renew the faith of the other Christians and can tell the non-believers in their own people groups about Jesus. Let's call these people culturally near non-believers and show them as green. These non-believers are their relatives, neighbors, and co-workers who speak, eat, and dress like them. In China, hundreds of millions of non-believers are now culturally near to followers of Jesus. 40% of the world's non-believers have many Christians in their own people groups who can reach out to them without learning a new language or culture. So their groups are called reached people groups because the good news is spreading there. Believers in China have a challenging job to share the gospel with so many non-believing relatives and neighbors, yet thankfully they can do it in their own language. In the reached people groups, committed followers of Jesus can encourage the other Christians in their families and communities to become fully committed to Jesus. They can also tell the many culturally near non-believers in their own people group about Jesus without learning a new language and culture. Many people in the world live in other ethnic groups, which have almost no followers of Jesus who belong in their communities and know their language. They have no chance of learning about new life in Jesus from someone within their own people groups. 60% of all non-believers in the world have few followers of Jesus in their own people group. They are culturally distant from believers. Let's show these culturally distant non-believers in blue. Most of them live in India, Muslim-majority countries in Africa and Asia, or other parts of Asia. They need believers from other people groups to come learn their language and culture and tell them about Jesus. They live in unreached people groups. Distinct ethno-linguistic people groups made up of less than 2% followers of Jesus and less than 5% other Christians. Which unreached people groups are the frontier peoples? Some culturally distant non-believers have so few believers that they have no chance of hearing about Jesus from people they know. Let's use a darker color of blue to show those with less than 0.1% Christian in their own people group. About one-fourth of the world's population live in frontier people groups, and over 95% of them are in India and Muslim-majority countries. These frontier people groups have no movement to Christ and no breakthrough of indigenous faith. Now is the time to unite what we know with what we do. So, 
We know that the reached people groups have lots of followers of Jesus who can tell them about Jesus. But guess what? We send 30 times as many cross-cultural Christian workers to them as we do to the people in unreached people groups. 30 to 1! These workers are not just going out from the West. They're going from everywhere to everywhere. But most of them are sent to work with other churches in their training or outreach programs. Currently, for every 30 cross-cultural Christian workers that go to the reached people groups of the world, roughly one goes to the unreached people groups, including the frontier people groups. As a result, the needs of people in unreached people groups, especially those in frontier people groups, are being grossly overlooked. The remaining mission task is largely in India, Muslim-majority countries, and Asia. We need many more witnesses for culturally distant non-believers in unreached people groups and in frontier people groups. The frontier peoples are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. This is the mission mobilization challenge of our generation. So, we live in a world where the need is still out there. There are four big reasons this is important. Reason number one, and this should be enough reason all by itself, Jesus commanded us to make disciples of all nations. Uh, after 2,000 years, we still need to complete the mission. A second reason is uh, described in Matthew 24, 14, where Jesus says, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Well, it'll be hard for us to know for sure when this has been accomplished, but we certainly know it hasn't been finished yet. A third reason is that having that all nations target aligns our other disciplines and efforts. Um, Archbishop William Temple said the church exists primarily for the sake of those who are not, uh, sorry, for the sake of those who are still outside it. The church exists primarily for the sake of those who are still outside it. And so the point is that if you have in mind that's where you're going to, how you get there uh, starts to make more sense and the things you'll do to get there start to line up and, um, in fact, line up, I think, with the heart of God in ways that it wouldn't happen if you didn't have that uh, ultimate goal. Last but not least, the fourth one of these things is we want to do what we see the Father doing. And so the question is, what is the Father doing? Uh, this is one point where I do have uh, something here that I'd like to read to you from a book called The Next Christendom by a scholar named Philip Jenkins. Uh, he, when he wrote this book, was teaching at Penn State. Now he teaches at Baylor, which in my view is too bad because I graduated from SMU and I think Baylor gets enough attention. <laughs> um, well, what he says in this book is this. Um, the first thing I want to point out that he talks about is Pentecostals, that there were only a handful of them in 1900, and there are several hundred million today. He's writing at the beginning of this century. It, 
And he says, is it reasonable to think that this is perhaps the most successful social movement of the 20th century? And according to current projections, the number of Pentecostal believers should surpass the one billion mark before 2050. In terms of the global religions, that uh, there will be roughly as many Pentecostals as Hindus and twice as many as there are Buddhists. And, oh yeah, by the way, there will be even more Roman Catholics than there are Pentecostals. So the, how, how is it that the church is growing so amazingly and somehow or other, we haven't necessarily noticed that. I think there's a cultural prejudice against this, and I think it gets underreported to us in our news sources. Um, Philip Jenkins said when he was uh, writing this book, uh, and his friends asked him what he was writing about, he said his theme was the future of Christianity. And a common follow-up question was, in effect, so how long do you think it will last? And uh, his own comment here is, in their own way, secular liberal Americans have a distinctively apocalyptic view of the future with an expectation of the uprooting of organized religion. He goes on to talk about a, an editorial published by uh, New York Times writer Brent Staples, who said that Christianity had failed and was collapsing and would continue to do so until and unless the religion came to terms with liberal orthodoxies on matters of sex and gender. Viewed from Cambridge or Amsterdam, such pleas may make excellent sense, but from the context of global Christianity, this kind of liberalism looks distinctly out of date. It would not be easy to convince a congregation in Seoul or Nairobi that Christianity is dying when their main concern is building a worship facility big enough for the 10 or 20,000 members they have gained over the past few years. And these new converts are mostly teenagers and young adults, very few with white hair. I have to say, there's nothing wrong with white hair, come on. <laughs> So why are we not seeing this? Well, I think there's a screening mechanism in place, and partly it's that we think the world is like what's happening in our culture, where there's a rising tide of what some people have called the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, people who don't have any religious faith uh, at all. Uh, let me give one story about that. This was a few years ago. A friend of mine went into a uh, department store in Pittsburgh, and they were looking for a gift for somebody and went up to the jewelry counter and a young lady who was uh, uh, working the counter came up and said, may I help you? And they said, well, yes, actually I'd like to buy one of these gold crosses. And the jewelry counter worker, a young woman in her 20s, said to her, oh, would you like a plain cross or would you like one with a little man on it? We are increasingly in a culture that doesn't know that that's called a crucifix and that the little man is Jesus. What the heck is going on? That's really weird when you compare it to the whole world. It's not like Eastern Europe in some, Eastern Europe as a whole in some way, but um, it's not the global norm. Um, well, 
I would like to say that God actually is raising up a missionary witness. It's part of that, come, that go from everywhere to everywhere thing. But I, I like, put up the first of those slides, please. Um, this is a picture of an event that took place in February 2019, and which most of you have probably never heard of. There are 60,000 uh, young adults and teenagers, a few people outside that range, but it was almost all young adults and teenagers at this event in Orlando, Florida, February 2019. 60,000 of them gathered, and the reason the event was called The Send was it was several movements like YWAM and House of Prayer in Kansas City and Bethel and uh, different groups that came together for the purpose of motivating and praying for and anointing these people to go to the ends of the earth and finish the job. That's what it was about. And unless you think this 60,000 thing was some kind of fluke, let's look at February 2020. Next slide. This is Brazil. 150,000 young adults and teenagers showed up for the sin. God is raising up what may be the biggest missionary movement in history. Sure looks like it. And these people are actually targeted on trying to go where the gospel hasn't been heard, or at least that's been the emphasis of these events. And um, next picture, please, next slide. You can see perhaps that what's going on here, the people on the stage actually out in the... Uh, uh, audience or congregation, whatever you want to call them, uh, as well, are holding up their shoes to God saying, I will go wherever you send me. Now, we Anglicans should probably be comfortable with taking off our shoes in church. I mean, we do it on Monday, Thursday. Well, some of you aren't comfortable with doing it then either. Um, <laughs> but the, the point on Monday, Thursday is utterly different from this. God is raising up a generation of people, and especially young people, who are dedicated to the idea that this is going to be the generation that finishes the job. Amen. Was that somebody who was in this generation? <laughs> um, so what does that mean for us? I think there are, uh, there's a set of stuff that we should think about. First of all, pray, second, give, third, mobilize, fourth, go. I wish I could combine that into a nifty little word of some kind or an acronym, but PGMG doesn't lend itself to pronunciation in English. Uh, pray. This has always been the thing that comes first, frankly. Um, if what we're trying to accomplish requires the presence and action of God, then prayer is foundational, not supplemental. You can go do this or try to do this, but if anything's real, anything real is going to happen, you need to pray into it as part of what's going on, including trying to discern when and where you go someplace. Or, um, yeah, that's good enough. Give. This is one of the very best things about Truro. Ever since I heard of this church and its ministries back in the 1970s, missions has always characterized this body. You've always been interested in outreach to your community and cross-culturally and to the ends of the earth. 
I'm not saying there aren't other problems that you've had to battle through and are maybe still battling through. I've actually never even heard of a church that doesn't have problems. Have you? Sure looks like all the ones described in the New Testament have their own problems. <laughs> but that doesn't mean there isn't something great about what God has done and is doing here. Truro has supported a lot of missionaries, frontier missionaries, missionaries to the unreached people groups. You support people, and I know some of them, who work for Wycliffe that's translating the Bible into the languages of these people. And you, you don't have movements to Jesus happening in the world minus a Bible in their own language. It's almost impossible to overestimate how important that work is. And there are other mission needs that you're attending to, too. I mean, I don't want to say that because there are 30, the ratio is 30 to 1, that the other mission's agendas are invalid. I just think it's disproportional. Really? If we're supposed to go to the ends of the earth, does that mean we're supposed to send 131st of our mission force to the ends of the world? Uh, there's something uh, we probably need to take a look at there. And giving to Truro is helping to accomplish that. It might not be the only place God would call you to give, but it is one of the places for sure. So pray, give, mobilize. Well, this is where I've been most involved. Uh, Rock the World, you know, founding and directing, and, and uh, the Josiah Project, the collegiate uh, ministry that we do. Accelerating in Christian leaders. Um, but I think that's one of the big tasks of the church in the West is to actually mobilize people so that they go to the ends of the earth. And last but not least, go. Pray, give, mobilize, go. Go. Churl has sent so many. You really have been an amazing church that way, particularly for Anglican churches. But my question today is, are there more? Is God still going to send people from this church who haven't gone yet? More pointedly, is that you? Now, I won't try to let the people over 60 off the hook because most mission agencies won't take you. <laughs> but the point is, that there are probably people in this church and the families and the, the realm of influence of this church who God would call to go to the ends of the earth. And last but not least, has the Holy Spirit touched you? Has God given you the ability to understand the scripture? Has he poured out the Holy Spirit so that's happened in your mind or is still happening in your mind? If so, where in your thinking is the need to deliver this gospel of the kingdom throughout the whole world. And where is it? In your system of priorities. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to respond to your word this morning. We want to understand the scripture. And we want to understand what you want us to do in response to your call to your church to go to the ends of the earth so that the whole world will hear the gospel of the kingdom. Lord, help us to know where you want us to fit into the prayer, uh, this into our prayer lives uh, individually and as a church. 
Lord, help us to know where and how much to give. Lord, help us to know what we need to do to mobilize people to the ends of the earth, including ourselves, perhaps. Lord, are you calling us to go? Are you stirring up in us the response of, here am I, send me? Help us to hear you, Lord, because you are Lord. We know what that word means. Help us to hear and respond, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.